sport. It is a tremendous thing. It unites, it divides, it inspires, it devastates. In Ireland, we have a unique ability to overachieve in it. With a small population in relation to global scale, we go above and beyond the acceptable level of success. We've seen Roy Keane succeed against the best in the world. We watched in awe as Sonia O'Sullivan outran the entire world. We galloped alongside A.P. McCoy as he ignored the idea of competition. We cried as Katie Taylor conquered the world over and over again. None of these were outliers. Before Roy, McGrath, Giles, Best and Brady ruled the world's game. Before Sonia, Tracy, Coughlin, Delaney and Purcell showed the world the battling heart of the Irish. With AP, Walsh, Geraghty, Russell and Blackmore ruled the sport of kings. Before Katie, Collins, McGuigan, Lee and Gogarty let the world know that the Irish are a people of courage. Before all of these athletes put Ireland on the sporting map, a man came from the shadows to announce to the world that on an island that is on its own in the Atlantic Ocean, an island once known to be the edge of the world, but now the centre of it, there lives a people who do not understand limits. This is his story. In 1881, in the small Mayo village of Bahala, a child was born. His name was Martin Sheridan. Martin lived a normal life for a boy from the west of Ireland in the late 19th century. He was the youngest of six children. He attended the local school and helped his parents, Joe and Kitty, to manage the family home. As Martin's life turned towards adulthood, he was faced with a decision. He could stay in Mayo, which offered little by means of opportunity for a man just turned 18 or he could join his two brothers who were bound for America. Martin weighed up his options. He visited the relatives of those who had left Mayo in the previous years. Although very few of them ever returned, they sent home letters to tell of their success and failures in the new world. The families told Martin of massive cities, giant buildings where thousands of people lived 
and jobs which any man willing to work could grasp. The decision was an easy one for Martin. Although he was sad to leave his home, he was excited for the adventure that lay ahead. Comforted with the knowledge that he was not going alone, in 1899, Martin packed everything he had into a small bag and with his brothers by his side, set sail for New York. On the ship, Martin and his brothers shared the glee and nerves of all the Irish bound for opportunity. They discussed what they would do with the money they were to earn. They planned the houses they were going to build. The wives they would marry. The big strong sons who would do them proud. They shared their fears of never returning home. They discussed their worries of not finding work. They confided in each other their upset at leaving home. They drank with the others on board. They danced, they sang and they laughed. They carried the Irish plan to infect the world with songs, poems and crack. When the ship stopped in New York, they quickly set off to find the Irish community in New York. This wasn't hard. Generations of Irish Americans put out their arms and embraced those from home into their world. They met with those they knew from home and gathered information on where to find work. Whilst looking for work, the Irish community also encouraged them into the world of sport in order to make friends and stay in touch with their heritage. Martin and his brother Richard made friends who were in the New York Police Department and they encouraged the two boys to take the civil service examinations. Martin's brother Andrew managed to get himself a training position in a hotel and catering business. Martin and Richard were coached through their exams by their friends in the police department and they passed without issue. Upon receiving their pass marks, they both enlisted in the city's police force. One of the reasons they were all so well liked in their new community was because the three brothers were natural athletes. At the sports days the Irish community held, the three brothers often found themselves in the first three podium spots, regardless of what sport was being played. Martin, in particular, stood out as a very unique individual. 
He was incredibly naturally strong, as quick as anything they had ever seen, and had little issue with his accuracy for either foot or hand. He was built to be an athlete with ease. Standing at 6 foot 3 and weighing 194 pounds of pure muscle, he was a powerhouse. Martin worked very hard in the police department. His size and strength made him a great asset to them. His mere presence would strike fear in criminals. But it was in sport where Martin really excelled. In 1901 he won his first official event. It was the discus throw. No other competitor could throw the discus anywhere close to where Martin could throw it. He then won a second competition a few short months later and in 1903 Martin wowed the world as he set the discus world record in only his third event. In 1904 he managed to qualify for the national circuit and won the American title in the discus event. He also won the shot put event having decided he might give it a go to whilst he was there anyway. It was on the back of this performance that he was selected for the American national team. Martin joined the American team in St. Louis for the Olympics. This was his first international event. He was nervous but confident. Those he was up against had been perfecting their sport their entire lives. Martin was just a guy having a go. It didn't start well. After the first round, Martin understood the quality he was up against. After the first few rounds, he found himself in an uphill battle to get into the medal spots. With three rounds to go, he was going to have to do something remarkable to recover. On his next attempt, Martin launched the discus with everything he had. As it flew, Martin's large arms thrust into the air as the discus glided across the arena. The crowd watched on amazed as the throw soared Martin into second place. On his second last attempt, his discus landed beside the leader of the event. On the last attempt, they matched each other again. It was then decided, for the only time in the Olympic discus event, that the gold medal would be shared. Martin was delighted as the gold medal was placed around his neck. 
he was totally consumed by the idea of feeling this inner pride again. Martin went back to America and really began to focus on his sporting career. Within just three weeks of his Olympic adventure, he set another world record. At the same time, Martin continued to work with the NYPD. He was appointed a member of the group called The Finest in 1906, a special unit. He helped organize the police carnival and games for the benefit of the welfare fund of the department, which for many years was an outstanding athletic event in New York. The media of America really began to take note of Martin at this time, with him being described by one journalist as the most handsome of the athletes, and although he was a giant in size, he could run the 100 yards in a little more than 10 seconds. In the lead-up to the 1906 Intercalated Games, games which were designed to be an additional Olympics, Martin was training so hard to improve his discus throwing that his abilities as an athlete grew in other areas too. He not only qualified for the discus throw, but also the shot put, the standing high jump, the standing long jump and the stone throw. Martin this time was completely focused. His mind was made of steel, his eyes were fixed on gold and his body was primed for elite performance. Martin used these games to show he was a real athlete. He returned home with a total of five medals from his events. Of these, two were gold. One for the discus throw and the other for the shot put. The rest were silvers in the standing high jump, the standing long jump and the stone throw. He also set further world records in these events. At these games, Martin also had another event of note. It is said that as Waterford man Peter O'Connor scaled the flagpole in the centre of the arena to rip off the British flag flying to represent him and replace it with an Irish one, Martin was one of the Irish and Irish-American athletes who brawled with the officials and security trying to pull him down. When Martin returned to America, he was a sporting icon. He was seen as invincible. With just two years to go until the next Olympics and Martin's hunger for more success, he also began to enter javelin throwing events. In 1907, Martin won the National Amateur Athletic Union Discus Championship and the Canadian Championship. 
1908, he won the Metropolitan, National and Canadian Championships. He set further world records during this time. In 1908, the London Olympics came around quickly and of course Martin was one of the first to qualify for the American team. He qualified for the discus throw again as well as the Greek discus and the standing long jump. On the eve of the events, the athletes took part in the customary opening ceremony. As part of this, as we still see today, the athletes paraded into the arena proudly under their country's flags. There was an unwritten rule at the time that as the athletes passed the royal family of the nation they were competing in, they were to dip their flag in acknowledgement of their presence. A sort of courtesy. As Martin approached the royal boxes, he stood beside the flag bearer Ralph Rose as they refused to dip the flag and they held it high and proud. The dignitaries were shocked to see the men so rude in not dipping their flag. After the event, Martin is said to have stated that Ireland had been forced to bow to the British too often, but not anymore. The other American athletes supported Martin's stance as they stood with their Irish brother. They all agreed the flag would not dip in support of the Irish struggle. Having started his events in controversy, Martin ended them in glory as he left London with two golds and a bronze in his pocket, as well as more world records. This time, however, Martin didn't return to America. This was the closest he had ever been to Mayo since he had left and he had no intention of wasting the opportunity. Martin travelled by boat and train to Dublin. From there, he boarded a train for Swinford Railway Station with the intention of going from there to his father's farm for a quiet catch-up with family and friends before returning to America. That was his intention. Martin was spotted in Dublin and rumours and stories in Ireland can spread faster than disease. By the time Martin reached Swinford, what seemed like all of Mayo was waiting there to greet their Olympic hero home. The place was a circus. Fathers had their sons on their shoulders to show them what they too could achieve. Mothers pushed their daughters towards the man of legend. Martin stood there shocked as word continued to spread like wildfire and swarms of people continued to appear. Martin looked at the crowd and began to shed a tear of pride. 
he stuck his hand into his bag and from it rose his medals above his head as the crowd exploded into a joyous cheer. Martin understood his medals were not his own, they belonged to all the people of Mayo. He was one of their own and they had no intention of letting him forget that. Martin's family were pushed forward towards him and his parents embraced him with a tremendous hug. It had been years since they had seen each other and they had only heard of their son's success through letters and newspapers. They had been unable to experience his successes with him. The family, now reunited, were taken to a nearby hotel which was quickly organising a public banquet. For that day and that day only, these people were all Olympic champions. At the event, Martin was pushed onto a stage to make a speech. I bring you now these words as he spoke them. I am once more with my own, and I don't think there are 20 people in this room who are not related to me in some way or other. In many a hard-fought contest, when only inches lay between me and the prize, I have often thought of you, and these thoughts never failed to make me gird my energies and drive my Swinford blood coursing madly through my veins in my efforts to achieve victory. After the event, Martin was whisked up home to Bahala. In his family home, with his parents, family and close friends, he drank, he danced, he sung and he laughed. The following day, he was brought to a much more local event. This was one just for the people of his home in Bahala. It was an open-air meeting under the West of Ireland sun. Really, it was just a day for Martin to be at home with his family and friends, sharing each other's stories, joy, sadness, and everything else they had missed out on while separated by the Atlantic. The rest of August 1908 was a whirl of excitement. Everywhere that Martin went, he was met by huge crowds. The trains he took were stopped at every station to allow local people meet him and sing to him. In Dublin, he was carried shoulder high from Broadstone train station to the Lord Mayor's carriage and on to a reception at the Gresham Hotel. Martin left Ireland again to return to America a few weeks later. After a number of other national events, he decided at the age of 30 in 1911 that it was time to retire from athletics and concentrate on his career. He soon progressed to the level of detective and also served as a special bodyguard for the Governor of New York. 
For the next seven years, Martin solidified himself as an important person in New York. He was not only a sporting icon, but also a very important member of the community through his work with the police. He was well respected and really well liked by all. So much so that in March 1918, Martin's friends organised a massive surprise party for him to celebrate his 37th birthday. It was a day on which they were going to celebrate Martin's life and achievements and display to him what they thought of this very special man. The day before the party was due to take place it was cancelled. Martin had fallen ill suffering from pneumonia, possibly a victim of the Spanish flu. He fought his illness for five long days at different points being on the brink of both recovery and death. Unfortunately Martin never did recover and after his five day battle he passed away. It is said that at the time, Martin's funeral was one of the biggest New York had ever seen. People came from far and wide to see off the great hero of Irish America. Martin left the world as one of the greatest athletes of all time. He held 16 world records, four Olympic medals and five intercalated games medals, as well as multiple national titles. In his obituary, the New York Times stated that Martin was one of the greatest athletes the United States has ever known. In 1988, Martin was inducted into the US National Track and Field Hall of Fame. The music for this episode was written, produced and performed by myself, Ryan O'Halloran. The story was researched and scripted by Oren. If you want to help to support this podcast, you can buy us a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com forward slash we the Irish or leave us a review on your podcast app. Ryan is an undone. Gurv Mahakut, Slonanish.